Thank you, Patty. So this morning we return to uh, Luke's gospel and we return to the road to Jerusalem. We have been journeying with Jesus in the record of Luke uh, over the last number of weeks as he makes his way back to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem back to glory. And Luke has recorded this journey with Jesus back to Jerusalem for us to understand and get clarity and certainty about what it means for us now today to follow him as disciples of Jesus Christ. So we've heard Jesus teach about what it means to be part of the kingdom of God, to, to, to join in under his rule. He has taught us about how the kingdom is going to grow and we've seen the surprising people who are going to be gathered in, the, the, the sort of the outcasts, the, the poor like Lazarus we saw last week, or the repentant prodigals like this younger son we saw the week before. All these surprising characters who are going to be gathered together to be at that final great party that Stevie spoke to us about last month. But now we come to this bit, uh, and Luke reminds us that we're still on the journey. Did you notice that from the first verse, verse number 11 of chapter 17, on the way to Jerusalem? So we're still on the journey, and we've still got more to learn. Because in this section, Jesus is going to start to tell us more about his program for this kingdom that he has introduced to us. Particularly after he goes back to heaven, how and when should we expect him to return? Have we got expectations for him to return? 2,000 years later, should life sort of feel this normal? Should it feel this sort of the same thing year in, year out? And if he will intervene and come back, what will that look like? How should we be waiting in the meantime? How should we prepare? It's those types of questions that Jesus now starts to teach his disciples about in the chapters that we've read, this uh, in 17 and number 18. And you see the theme for our passage is actually brought up by the Pharisees in verse number 20, when they ask Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And it leads to Jesus making these two statements, one to the Pharisees in verse 20 and 21, and then he turns to his disciples, verse 22 to the end of the chapter. And it actually seems initially, when you first read it, like he's saying two maybe contradictory things. So he turns to the Pharisees and he says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, well, in another sense, the kingdom of God is coming in a way that will be universally visible and public to everyone. As the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And so these are the two themes we want to think of this morning. But, of course, rather than being contradictory, Jesus is talking to them about different points in time, different parts of the timetable, different parts of the program, different stages. And, and so our expectation must be different. It must be aligned with whatever phase we are thinking about. To the Pharisees, in verse number 21, he says, Behold, or, or look, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's talking about now. And then, when he turns to his disciples in verse 22, he says, the days are coming, future tense. He changes the time frame. There will be a time when you are waiting for me to return. So two different 
timetables then, two different points in time. And that's what Luke is inviting us to consider this morning, the implications of the coming of the kingdom of God both now and what has not yet come to pass but will. What is now not outwardly visible and secondly, what will become universally visible and worldwide. And as we look at them this morning, I want us to see both how important and relevant they are for what we should expect and how we should respond today. Firstly, we'll see the kingdom of God is primarily invisible and internal now, so we must personally recognize Jesus, the king who has come. We must recognize God's king, Jesus, who has come. And secondly, the kingdom of God will come with sudden power and judgment, and so we must prepare now and wait for the kingdom that is to come. So firstly then, the present unseen kingdom uh, recognize God's king who has come. You see, the Pharisees asked this question of Jesus because they assume that the kingdom of God is gonna come with pomp and glory and regal ceremony. And, and so their question, it, it sort of betrays the fact that they sort of think what, what Jesus has done so far, I mean, his teaching and his miracles, it just hasn't quite lived up to the expectation of the kingdom of God coming. They've been fairly underwhelmed but Jesus responds to them in verse 20 and 21 that the reign and work of God right now, what God is building right now is not coming with pomp and outward ceremony. In fact, his words sort of drip with irony as he tells them, no, the kingdom of God is actually in the midst of you. If you could see beyond the end of your own nose, you'd see the messianic king is here. But yet the basic fact that they refuse to recognize Jesus, despite the signs, despite the evidence that he is God's king, meant they could not see the kingdom of God on earth. And you see, Luke has just put before that another story that puts this into context. The story that we read from verse number 11 to 19 as Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem and traveling by the border of Samaria and Galilee, he hears shouts from a distance. Jesus, Master, he hears, have mercy on us. And it's a group of 10 lepers, long-term, socially isolated from friends, family, and their community. Jesus stops. He doesn't touch them or pronounce them clean as he has in the past, but rather he instructs them to go to the priest who had the responsibility of inspecting someone's health and cleanliness and declaring them with a full bill of health or otherwise. And based on the word of Jesus, the 10 go and incredibly, they are healed from their disease. But yet at the risk of, of, of minimizing this amazing miracle, it's not that point that Luke focuses on, but rather it's what happened next. One, just one of the nine returns, no longer diseased or quarantined or socially distanced. He approaches Jesus and falls at his feet and thanks him. Or as Jesus puts it, he gives praise to God. 
And Jesus draws attention and, and underlines the significance of this man's response, this one of the, of the ten. And he says, were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? You see, he was a Samaritan. But it's just this foreigner, this outsider, he's the one who gets it. He gets the kingdom of God. The religious experts, the Pharisees who were asking the questions, they didn't have the humility to see the Messiah standing right in front of them, but this guy gets it. Before to him, Jesus was probably just another traveling holy man that he yelled across the road to because he was desperately in need of relief from his disease. But he's starting to piece the, the, the pieces together and, and the significance of what has just happened to him and, and who this Jesus must be. And so now he falls down before him. This man, more than a man, he's divine, worthy of praise, gratitude, and recognition. He gets the kingdom of God. He sees it because he recognizes and bows to Jesus. You see, we sometimes think that you know, the Pharisees are, are sort of the real pantomime villains, but you know, they were the respected leaders of the society. Their opinions on religious and political matters were important. They're the ones who would be on the six o'clock news uh, being asked to give their, their views. Their learning was impressive. Their, their, their example was to be followed and admired, but that's not what qualifies anyone for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God they looked for, the kingdom of God they were waiting for, they just couldn't see it because it meant recognizing Jesus as their king, and they wouldn't do it. But yet this leprous outcast with mixed ethnicity and questionable heritage joined the kingdom of God that day. He didn't have the terms or the Old Testament knowledge but he recognized Jesus for who he is. And Jesus affirmed his faith when he said, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And the challenge comes to us, doesn't it? Do we recognize God's king who has come to us this morning? What about you? We use the verb recognize in different senses, don't we? We maybe say it when we recognize someone, oh, sure, it's yourself. I didn't recognize you there with the big coat and the hat on. When we just sort of know someone. But there's a further, deeper meaning, isn't there? We also give recognition to those we consider worthy. The George Best Belfast City Airport recognized the greatest footballer to ever come for the British Isles. We as a city, we want everyone who travels to our city to recognize a man of uh, such talent having heritage from this city. We recognize in that fuller sense, and, and that's the sense we mean this morning. Do we recognize Jesus as God's king? Yeah, you, you understand stuff about Jesus. Yeah, sure, but are you willing to submit to his rule? Bow before him, because that's where the kingdom of God starts today, here and now. Don't expect the pomp and the ceremony 
As often is the case in Luke, it's the outsiders and the unlikely characters who get it. So if you're here this morning and you're new to Christian things, you don't have to be an expert to belong to the kingdom of God. You don't have to be born in a certain country or, or to a certain family. Jesus, like he did that day, stands still and offers you a place in his kingdom this morning based on grace and his power received through faith in him, just like that Samaritan leprous man received healing and salvation. So firstly, the present unseen kingdom. It's here. You gotta recognize God's king who has come to us. Secondly then, we prepare and wait for the returning king and his judgment. As we saw before in verse number 22, Jesus now turns to his disciples. And as we've journeyed with uh, Jesus and the disciples have followed along this, this, this journey to Jerusalem that we picked up in chapter uh, nine of Luke, we've seen that his disciples have learned the lessons of what it means to follow him, what it means to be an apprentice to Jesus, the demands it will, will bring to our lives to, to follow Jesus as disciples and apprentices. But now Jesus wants them to, to look forward. He needs them to understand the, the future timeline, if you like, because it's not going to be plain sailing for them. In fact, before too long, they were going to see their nation reject their master as messianic king. And they would soon find themselves under pressure, under criticism, and even under attack. And Jesus is aware that it's not going to be easy to wait for his next coming. So in order to equip them and to equip us to wait and prepare, Jesus wants us to be certain about certain aspects of his future second coming. Uh, now here in verse 22 to 37. And so I think we can draw three main points from this paragraph. Firstly, it will be unmissable. Secondly, it will be sudden. And thirdly, his second coming his coming again, his return will be divisive. Jesus says it will be unmissable. Despite the fact there will be a delay, he won't come without those of his kingdom knowing. In fact, Jesus says here four times, he refers to himself as the son of man, calling back the image from Daniel, the Old Testament prophet's vision where the, the, the Messiah is given dominion and glory and a kingdom in a, in a public and glorious display. And Jesus says in this passage that it'll be like lightning flashing across the sky. It will be obvious, dramatic. So while we wait, don't be deceived by anyone who claims otherwise. Don't get distracted by false teachers or prophets or conspiracy theorists that say Jesus turned up here or turned up there. Stay away from posts that say 23 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 2023. Dig in and wait, brothers and sisters. He is coming. Don't be concerned about missing out. Life will seem very normal. It's going to seem maybe too normal, but that's to be expected. His return will happen and it will be unmistakable. But second, it will be sudden. Verse 26 to 33. 
When most people dismiss and reject Jesus, they would, of course, largely forget about him. That's what we see today, isn't it? So unsurprisingly, his return will be a shock to the system. He will catch the world unprepared. It will be sudden. And Jesus uses two Old Testament events to illustrate the point. He talks about the days of Noah and the days of Lot, just as it was in the days of Noah. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage, just as it was in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, and both the flood came, the fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Notice the the repeated refrain. Both Noah's era and Lot's era were both notorious times for human wickedness. But what Jesus actually emphasizes is that judgment fell while they were eating and drinking. Why they were preoccupied with the day-to-day necessities of normal life. That's when the final judgment will suddenly come. It will be swift it will be sudden, and it will be unexpected. So the application, the, the, the implication is prepare. Prepare now. We can't let a preoccupation with normal life and all of the, the, the needs and the musts, the food, the, the romance, relationships, family, business, career, blind us to what is coming. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus says. Remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife, despite the warning, she dithered and wavered. She lagged behind the rescue party. She looked back to Sodom and she was lost. She wasn't ready to leave it. There was something in her heart that longed for it. She wasn't ready to lose her life in this world to keep it for the next. It's crazy when you think about it. She could hear the judgment of God falling. She could smell the sulfur and brimstone. She could even feel the heat of the fire of God's judgment falling, and that wasn't enough warning. She hesitated, she toyed, and she was lost. And so solemnly Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. For what did she look back? What did she so value Was it something illicit? Probably not. Just the normal life that she had made in that city. Who knows what else? I don't know. Her daughter's fiancés were still there. But all I know is this. She wasn't ready for the judgment to fall. And so for us now, there must be a preparation now, a, a longing, a heart that is for the kingdom to come, holding loosely to the temporary things of this world that will perish. Are we ready? Are our hearts being set on the new heavens and the new earth? If I can paraphrase what, what Jesus goes on to say in, in verse 30. He says, when he comes again, if you're upstairs, there won't be time to pick any of your stuff up from downstairs. If you're out in the garden or in the field, there'll not be time to go back for the house for anything. You won't take a penny. You won't take a possession with you. The coming again of Christ will be sudden. So let's prepare now. It made me ask this question, am I ready for heaven? And when I think of that question, I remember a little gospel tract we used to give out with a similar title, Are You Ready for Heaven? 
And I think when I think of that, and I think when we think of that, our assumption is always to ask, sort of, have I trusted Christ? Or in the language we used earlier, have I recognized Jesus as king? But I feel this passage is asking something more. Are we ready for heaven? Is our heart set on it? Is our heart set on the kingdom of God which is coming? Because it will come suddenly and the, the values and the priorities in this world will be destroyed. Are we ready to lose this life in this world for, to keep the one for the next? So, so what does that all look like? As, as we come into this Christmas season, it's a, it's a strange, it's a busy time, but certainly in the words of this passage, it's a time of eating and drinking. I think we can all agree on that. And I wonder if this Christmas season, if it gives us a chance to check our behaviors and our attitudes, does, do they indicate that we are living for the reign of Christ or not? So for example, is this gonna be a time of excess, of self-indulgence, of food, of drink, spending, money, selfish pleasure? Or is it gonna be a time of generosity? kindness, joy, self-control? Are we praying for individuals that we can invite to the carol service? Is that what this season is about for us? Are we ready to open our homes, show hospitality, make time for others, look out for those in need? How can we this Christmas season hold lightly to the stuff that everybody else is obsessing about and prepare for the coming of Christ by investing in the next. It will be unmissable. It will be sudden. Finally, it will be divisive. Worldwide judgment is coming. And in the end, people want judgment and justice to be done, don't they? It's sort of woven into the fabric of healthy human nature. I was discussing this with a friend just recently, and they pointed out to me that the desire for judgment, it actually feels more pre pre prevalent now in our cultural moment than in recent times. A, a snapshot of social media will see people sharding about injustice, racial injustice, uh, climate injustice, gender injustice, political injustice, economic injustice, Free speech, free speech injustice, if you follow Elon and the Twitter story. People are, are constantly nowadays crying for action and judgment. And even the rise of cancel culture, at the very least, shows us that people want individuals that they have perceived to do wrong to be judged, to be canceled. And in truth, we're, we're all painfully aware of the reality of evil and its effects and we want it to be dealt with. We want it to be canceled. Well, Jesus here assures us that judgment is coming. It will be done by our creator and our judge. And it will be on his terms. Not the mob, not what's popular or in vogue. You see, Jesus cites the example of Noah and Lot, and both the flood of Noah's day and the fire of Lot's day, it had a purging effect, didn't it? There was a, a mass of corruption and evil, and like a skillful surgeon faced with a, a, a cancerous malignant tumor, God removed it, he destroyed it. And so it shall be again when the Son of Man comes. 
Evil will be judged, and those not prepared will be taken away. It will be divisive. A division will be made. There will be two, Jesus says, one taken and the other left. And it will be final. But yet God delays. Still, God waits patiently. And it's as if Jesus stands here now. We've just seen him sort of majestic in his, in, his, in his sort of keenly role, bring healing and cleansing and restoration to this leper. And, it, and it's as if God's king stands to us now, offering all the blessings of the kingdom of God now. Come, take it. But one day, it'll be unmissable, it'll be sudden, that he will come and put a stop to evil, sin, and injustice. And all outside the safety of the kingdom of God will be destroyed. So the future coming of the kingdom of God, it will come. So prepare now and wait patiently. Finally, in chapter 18, Jesus fleshes out the implication for those in his kingdom who are waiting with the parable in the first eight verses of chapter 18. What does it look like for us to wait for his coming again? How are you getting on with waiting Are you still praying eagerly or is the heart growing weak? Luke helpfully explains in verse number one why Jesus tells this parable. It's it's that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so in the parable, Jesus tells, there's this judge. He's a man in authority, a, a, a man responsible for administering justice. But he is an awful human being of a man. Jesus describes him as being without reverence for God nor care for other people. So he had no sense of shame or or honor. There was nothing decent about him that you could appeal to if you needed him to act. You couldn't say to him, for the sake of God above, please act, or for the sake of the good of other people, please act. He wasn't motivated by any of those two things. He's a horrid, selfish man. We'd maybe say that judge cares for one person and one person only, and that's himself. No conscience, no softness, no care. And of course, such a man in such a position in that society, well, he could have done what he wanted. If you had the cash to keep him sweet, I'm sure he'd be your friend. He certainly didn't have to appear before an ethics committee. He did what he wanted. And so Jesus goes on in the parable to introduce this this widow, a vulnerable widow, and she had a cause for which she needed this judge to intervene and to give her justice. Now, it would have been normal in that culture for a male family member or guardian to represent a female before a judge in such a case, but this widow doesn't seem to have anybody to stand with her or for her, and so she stands alone. Being a widow, she's vulnerable, she's alone, she's suffering injustice, and she has little to no resources at her disposal to get this judge of all judges to step in and administer judgment. So faced with this immoral, unethical, shady judge who has no interest in dealing with her case, what can she do? Well, she only had one option. She kept coming to him 
Persistence, persistence, persistence. She hangs in there. She comes and she comes and she comes and pleads and pleads and pleads. She doesn't lose heart. She doesn't give up. She just kept coming to him. So much so, the judge says, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman, the New Living Translation says, is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. The force of Jesus' logic is that if this principle works in this lesser scenario of her persistence, then how much more Will it work in the greater scenario of real life? Since this awful, selfish judge can be moved to action with persistent pleading from this widow, how much more will our compassionate Heavenly Father respond to his children's persistent prayers? See, Jesus does recognize that it is going to be hard. Because of the delay, we are in danger of losing heart So to those who have grown weary or discouraged, or even those who have grown too busy or easily distracted, Jesus fuels our prayer, fuels us with this parable to keep us going so that when he returns, he will find faith, faithful continuing. There are times and circumstances when it is difficult to wait for the Lord's return. It's hard to pray. And the parable points us initially probably to those who are persecuted, who are suffering wrongfully and in desperate need of justice. But there are others this morning who I'm sure feel weary, feel in a similar boat, discouraged in prayer. And in those circumstances, it can be tempting to, 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 to feel like heaven's silent, to feel like Christ's coming is so remote, to assume our prayers aren't getting past the ceiling, or worse still if they are, And God hears them, he can't do anything about it or doesn't want to. And so it's tempting to give up. But at that point, persistence in prayer is more important. And, and, And Jesus gives us this parable to fuel us because we know the real true character of our God. He is able and he is willing. And yes, he is patient, And yes, he is delaying, but he will work in history and he will vindicate those who trust in him. And so we must continue to pray. What a privilege it is to pray. We're a generation that are so easily distracted. I would be embarrassed by the number of times um, if somebody would, was able to count them, that I'm sitting in a conversation with Susie and I'm simultaneously distracted by my phone and I'm left with a useless notification and a lot of making up to do. And it can often be that way with prayer where we allow the distractions to come in, but as we consider this parable, as we consider this you know, widow who received such help from this gangster of a judge, how much more confidence can we have as believers coming to our almighty heavenly father who cares for us. And he's ready to receive us with an open ear and to give sustenance for the journey. What fuel it is for prayer. Starting the day with prayer. Maybe on the commute home, switching off the podcast, switching off the radio, talking to God and giving thanks for the day that's passed. 
What a privilege to pray. Let's be persistent in it. So we're done. Firstly, the present unseen kingdom is here. If you haven't yet come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, recognize God's King who has come to us today. Join the outcasts and the sinners. We're all welcome in the kingdom of God. And secondly, prepare for the returning king and his judgment. It will be unmissable, sudden, and divisive. Let's get ready, brothers and sisters. Let's pray and not lose heart. The king is coming. He is coming again. Let's pray as we close. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he has brought the kingdom of God to our very midst. And as we consider this Christmas season, heaven has come to us. We thank you that we have found a home, a standing in grace and mercy before you. We pray for those who do not yet know Jesus as their Savior, that even this morning they return to him in repentance and faith. And as we consider the coming again of the Lord Jesus, we praise you that it will happen, that you will not let this world go on into its own destruction, but you will step in and evil will be done away with, injustice will be dealt with. We pray that we would prepare now for that kingdom to come and that we would wait persistently, continuing in prayer. In the Lord Jesus' name we ask it, amen.